chapter 4 is dealing with an extremely important topic that I want to just uh, cultivate as we were doing uh, last time, cultivating your mind the fundamental thoughts that are going on there in that, in that text. Um, the first verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 will um, kind of inform us as to <clears throat> what we're dealing with. You guys remember the word account, account verse 1, let a man so account of us. I want you to lift up the word account because I want to talk to you about it for a moment and then show you how the word account really is the premise for what Paul is going to be not so much as arguing, but explaining who the we is that we talked about before. This is what we have on our board here as a, as a, a sort of graph. We are, you are, Christ is. And we talked about that on Friday. I want to touch on that a bit. I want to talk about the sort of hierarchical application of those three subject matters. Let a man so account uh, of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The word account there is logizomai. It is a Greek word that we use in our English context that has to do with calculating. It has to do with calculating how to calculate or assess or to, um, to um, evaluate, we can use that word too, it has to do with actually numbering. It is a numerical thing, numbering. It has to do with um, counting. It's an accounting term. To calculate, assess, evaluate, to number. That's exactly the way the word is used in Matthew's gospel coming out of Isaiah 53. And he, that is Jesus, was numbered with the transgressors. So when I use that last definition number, that is the more literal application of our Greek term logizomai, from which we get our term logic. Logic. And logic is all about thinking. Logic is about reasoning. Logic is about this kind of uh, evaluating what is in front of us. Does that make some sense? I want, I want to work with that a little bit more. I just want to. Don't get, don't get sidetracked by logic in some hyper-intellectual way. Logic is simply the whole system mechanism of human interaction at the level of seeking to understand what's in front of you. For instance, I thought about this analogy because I wanted to come home. The moment a baby is born, that baby begins to give an account, engage in a, an account between him and the person most important to him, and that is his mama. Um, the moment a baby is born and they come out the womb, they are going into an accounting process. They're engaging in analysis. They're engaging in evaluation. They're using all their faculties. Their eyes are fixed on their mama. Their ears are wide open. Every part of their sensory mechanism is engaged in knowing who this person is in front of them for which that individual has been brought into life. This is the idea of accounting. Accounting is evaluating. It is assessing. It's focusing. It's analyzing. And it's drawing conclusions. Did that make some sense? Like a baby 
is doing so many things for the first several weeks and months of his life around evaluating. He's evaluating the atmosphere. He's evaluating the sound. He's evaluating smell because what he wants to do is to be able to identify what's safe and what's not safe for him. Did that come home? That's what a child does. And mama is the primary object for that child to begin to establish who this person is that's helping them to exist. Most important person in their life. And then other people come into the fray and guess what a child does with them? Evaluates them. Evaluates them. And, and, and when we're adults who understand this major process of evaluation that's going on with a child, we try to help the child evaluate in a context of comfort, don't we? You'll notice with a newborn, whenever a newborn is brought around a bunch of other people, you notice what you don't do when you come up to the newborn. You don't frown and you don't scream. You don't try to disrupt their process of analysis and evaluation because that's what they're doing all the time in order to try to figure out what is normal and what is true, what is consistent and what is safe, what is right and what is wrong. Am I making some sense? Right. And, and I'm driving this home because when Paul says, let a man so account of us, he's using an imperative saying, I need you to get me and Apollos right. This is what we were talking about on Friday, right? Really, what he's talking about doing is judging. That's what the term means to judge. To give an account is to evaluate with the objective of judging. Judging. That's the word I want you to capture now because. Judging is something that has a very negative pejorative connotation in, in our world, doesn't it? Like you will hear people go, don't judge me, 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 quit judging me. Now, there's a fundamental problem with that prohibition. Do you know what that is? That individual is engaging in more judgment than anybody else. Right, so I want to help you with that because I want you to understand something about the tension around judging and not judging. It is right, as Matthew chapter 7 says, judge not lest you be what? Right. On the other hand, God would tell us to examine ourselves. God would tell us you shall know them by their fruits. So you don't want to have a lopsided, overgeneralized understanding of the concept of judgment. Don't run from judgment. A child, as soon as they be born, are engaged in a 24-hour process of judging. They will never survive if their judgment mechanism is not right. They will never survive. I'm saying that to you and me. It would be impossible for you and me to survive in our world if we weren't constantly analyzing evaluating, judging, assessing, proximating, and drawing conclusions. And so the term legizomai, uh, as Paul is using here, it's a very prominent and common term in the New Testament, is to evaluate to the point that you draw a proper conclusion on what we're dealing with. Does that make some sense? Draw a proper conclusion on us. So let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Again, what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is, don't get me wrong. Don't get Apollos wrong. Now, you and I, would, we would want people to not get us wrong, too. 
Is that true? So you and I have a right to go, don't get me wrong. And then what we would want to do is facilitate them with whatever is necessary for them to evaluate, assess, analyze, critique, measure, judge, and then get a right conclusion about me. And what Paul did, as we talked about on Friday, he said, this is the way we want you to assess us. First, we want to make sure that you understand that we are servants. Y'all got that? We are servants. Hooperates. Remember what I told you that was? That was the silent, unseen servant. The unseen servant. A hooperates is an unseen servant because a hooperates is a lower galley rower in the ship. He's on the third deck right along with a bunch of other indistinguishable people making sure that the boat gets down the road. He's a hooperates. And so what Paul was saying is, hey, look, you Corinthians, you guys are stuck in a quagmire of judgment and exalting men. And what we want you to understand is we don't want you to do that with us, let alone anybody else. Here's the first thing I want you to know about me, says Paul, and I want you to know it about Apollos because Apollos is his dude, right? We learned that in chapter three. We are lower galley rowers, and our job is to help you with your what? Read your outline. You guys were here on Friday. Help you with your what? To assist you with your what? To assist you with your what? To assist you on your journey of what? Faith. Okay, look at point number one, so you're not paying attention at all. We are servants of Christ and supporters of your what? That's right. So I see I'm going to have to start here again. I'm going to have to start here again. I want you to get it. So now notice what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I want you to pay attention to the impact of my life, of my labor in your life. I want you to pay attention to the impact of my, this is what makes me important to you. What makes me important to you is not that I'm seen, not that I'm put on a platform, not that I'm exalted. Because remember, this is the party spirit that Paul is deconstructing, right? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I am of Paulus. I am of Paul. I am of Cephas. They are inordinately exalting these men. What Paul says is, first thing I want you to get is you don't really see me, but you actually feel what I do. Because my labor is actually advancing your faith. The reason you are getting down the road in your walk with God is because God has gifted me as his unseen servant to make sure that the boat of the gospel, the ship of your faith, is sailing in the right direction. That's number one. That's very important to get. Very important to get. So he says, we're servants in the Hooperates sense. We are simply officers that do what God says. The second one is the, the diaconus. The diaconus, or it's the term deacon. You can write that down. That's back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as we had seen as well. 1 Corinthians 3 lays out what it means to be a deacon. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 8. We are deacons. Remember what I told you? I told you that a deacon is known for one thing, speedily executing the task that is given to him. Diakonos is a compound word. Dia is always a prepositional term that means to be thorough in what you do. Prepositionally, it means to pass through the sphere of its target, like a diameter. 
You pass through the sphere. It's always the idea of completing your task. Dia is a common prefix on many nouns and verbs in the, in the Greek language, like diakrino, we're going to get there in a moment. To thoroughly judge. To diakonize means to thoroughly and quickly and swiftly do the job that you're called to do. That's what a deacon is. Diakonos is the term for deacon. It's the word that was used for Jesus in Matthew's gospel when it says, Jesus came not to be ministered to, but to what? Minister and lay down his life. And remember what I'm getting at. I'm saying that what Paul wants the Corinthians to do is have a proper assessment and give a, a right and accurate account of who they are. And that's by Paul saying, we are merely servants. We are merely servants. The first kind of servants we are, are servants that are not seen, not heard, but felt. Because your faith is only advancing by the labors of the gospel and the work of the ministry we are engaging in. Does that follow? Secondly, we want you to know that we are men who kick up the dust to get the job done. When Jesus says to us, jump, we say, how high? That's a deacon. And really what I love about both of these uh, descriptives, these kind of terms for uh, servant here, is that they really describe the character and nature of Christ among us. Remember, because our title is what? The what kind of servant? Good. I, I hope you're with me because I, I want to make my way through this so we can be prepared for Friday's class and go even deeper. The third one is doulos. Doulos. Now, doulos is the common term in your Bible for servant. It's broadly generically applied. Again, we are servants of the Lord. This is the way the, the apostle opens up almost every epistle when he says, uh, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ and an apostle of God, right? He almost always and almost all the apostles do, but that too is because Jesus is the grand doulos of the father. He is the servant of the father. Now, what does that mean? It means this. To be a doulos is to be someone who is bought and paid for by a master to do his bidding without regard to how I feel or how I think. I have been paid for. I have been redeemed. I am my master's servant. This is the extreme paradox of God is the master and we are the what? Right. Now, if we're operating out of, under, out of an understanding of the doulos, you know what that means? The doulos doesn't have the privilege of modifying the master's instructions to anybody. It does not even matter what people think about the master's instructions. Like the doulos can't even hear you. Literally in the, in the uh, book of Isaiah, the best doulos is the doulos who has eyes but does not see. Ears that do not hear. Why? Because he can't be interested in all of the various opinions of everybody that wants to tell God a piece of their mind because he's a servant. Now, I want to help you because I'm contextualizing this emphasis around one thing, and that is judging. Our word is judging. This is what Paul knows. It's judging. He says we are, which is Paul and who? Apollos. Good, you're with me. Paulus, we are being judged by you. That's, that's the whole reason for Paul's uh, letters is Paul is being judged and Apollos is being judged. 
You are judging us. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. Pull it up. I want to make sure I anchor into it, and I'm going to spend the rest of the time working through the biblical concept of judging and not judging, because I want us to get this right. I think we penetrated into it very well on Friday, and I want to make sure we get back there and talk it through. Am I not an apostle? You notice he's talking to the church at Corinth, right? Now, this is a letter, and a letter is like any letter. You're just as a long continuation of, of words and statements and paragraphs. There are, no, there are no verses and chapters in a letter. We do all that. This was a continual conversation. So we're now, this is 1 Corinthians 9. We are five chapters in, are we not? Because where we are is chapter 4. Paul's still writing. And when he gets to chapter 9, guess what he says? Am I not an apostle? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Well, something is going on between Paul and the church at Corinth that he has to raise up his apostleship. And it's because they're questioning it. Notice what he goes on to say. Am I, am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And all of those are, 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 are clear answers. Are not ye my work in the Lord? Whoa! Remember what I told you? As a hooperades, you don't see me, you don't hear me, but you know I'm present because your faith is moving. You're getting down the road of grace and faith because of my labors in your life. You may not acknowledge me. I don't need to be acknowledged. I'm on the third row. You're the one up on the deck enjoying all the blessings of God. That's Paul's ironic argument in chapter four. We're going to get there. So believers get to live out of the bounty of the apostles while the apostles suffer the rigors of being Christ's representative on earth. And then we as church folk have the audacity to want to question God's servants. Now, we talked about that. Romans 14. Who are you to judge another man's servant? Right. Before that master, will he stand or fall? And God is able to make him stand. I want to get back in there for the next 30 minutes. But I want to just make sure we advance somewhat on the broader premise of chapter four. And that is Paul is saying, please get me right. That's fair, isn't it? Please get me right. Since so many of you are getting me wrong. Get me right. Get Apollos right. We're nothing but servants of Christ. Which means if the logic were to follow that what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is, hey, you guys, we're all God's people and we're servants of Christ. So really, if you got a problem with me, take it up with him. Did that make some sense? Right. What I like about here, and I really don't want to jump here yet, but I love this. Paul says, I am an apostle, I am free, I have seen Jesus, and guess what? You are my work in the Lord. That's really in the affirmative. You do know that. The church of Corinth would have never been in existence if it wasn't for Paul. That's what chapter 4 is teaching. I'm going to go back to what I said on Friday. Paul is like a parent talking to his hard-headed teenage kids who dare to come home and actually challenge the authority of his parents. Did you get that? Paul is like a parent who is addressing, trying to reason with and get his kids to understand, you have lost your mind to think of me any other way than who I really am. And if I were to drill home on the analogy of the parent, And I've said it before, when we have kids, our kids for a long time are the princes and princesses, and we're the servants. Functionally, that's what we are. 
I mean, like the moment that that child is conceived in the womb, all of our world is turned upside down. I'm running to the store in the middle of the night for Barbara because she's she hungry. And she's not hungry for herself. That baby is saying, hey, I need nutrients. The moment that baby is born, guess what we're doing? We, we're changing diapers because the baby is pooping five times a night. Barbara's changing. I'm changing. Right? For many, many years, we lose sleep. I remember when we were having kids, I think I was on my fourth one. I said, Lord, I ain't going to never, ever sleep again. Like never, ever sleep again. I had lost the idea of being able to sleep the whole night through. Am I making some sense? It's called being a doulos. It's called being a hooperates. It's called being a diaconate. Please let it come home. This is why I told my kids, I said, look, I helped y'all get all those degrees because y'all gonna, y'all gonna pay my retirement when I, when it's time for me to retire. I'm sorry. I've not already poured into you. I'm kidding, but in a sense, I'm not. <laughs> and, and what Paul wants you not to get, and I want you to get this so I can go into it next. We have to actually judge right. We have to analyze right. We have to make sure our assessment is right. And then Paul gets into a category of judgment that I want to go back to. He's going to talk about judgment in terms of itself, judgment in terms of others, and then judgment in terms of Christ. The way you can frame it is this way. This here is the, um, the way that I had it in my mind was the um, me, other, and him judgment. The judgment that I impose upon myself, the judgment that others impose upon me, and the judgment that Christ imposes. The judgment of me, other, and Christ. You are always dealing with that triad. Everybody's always dealing with self-judgment, other judgment, and God's judgment. Write it down, because I want to make sure we drill into that on Friday more fully. Um, and these three categories can give you a lot of problems. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse uh, 2 and 3. Let me try to fix this to make sure you guys aren't freezing because I, I don't want you cold. Um, this AC does what it wants sometimes. and I, This is what I don't like about artificial intelligence. It just actually tries to tell me it knows better than we do. Um, look at what Paul says in verse 2 and 3, and I'm going to go into it a little bit more fully like we did last time. And I want to drill down because I want to make sure that I clarify something that I talked about on Friday, and I want you to get it. Because what Paul is about to do now is he's about to explain to the second group, you who are judging, you who are judging. In fact, I didn't even get a chance to, to tie that knot. I got to go back there and tie that knot. You who are judging us, this is what he's about to deal with. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I need to look at verse 2 and 3 briefly just to give you the context. Notice what happens in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 9. If, it, if I be not an apostle unto others, yea, doubtless I am to you. I could carry that analogy over. You don't have any other father but me. I'm your father, right? I'm your father. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 4 tells them, literally. I am your father in the faith. The rest of these guys are teachers. I am your father spiritually. So Paul is really trying to regain a proper assessment of the relationship with the church of Corinth. Now watch this. Yea, doubtless, I am, uh, I am to you, for the seal of my apostleship are you in the Lord. Once again, he's owning the fact that the very existence of the Corinthian church is an evidence that Paul was the apostle. My answer to them that do what? Examine. The word there means to judge. 
to judge. Diacrino. That's the word we're getting ready to do. My answer to them that judge me. So you see, there's some judgment going on in Corinth against Paul, isn't it? Right. I just want you to get that. So now notice what Paul is saying. My answer. Paul is responding. Sometimes when people want to judge you, want to evaluate you, want to misrepresent you, want to fail to get the facts together, sometimes their judgment has to be answered by you. Particularly if it's a relationship. Would you agree with that? Like a relationship merits the reciprocity of response when something is askew in terms of assessment. Your kids come home and they get you wrong because some fool have told them that they don't have to honor you. You got to check them. That's what Paul is doing. That's what, what Paul is doing. Go back to verse three in our text. And it's obvious in your outline because we worked it. I, I kind of got you in the vortex now. I want to work this through. So in point number one, we are servants. Point number two, our standard is faithfulness to him. We talked about that, didn't we? Our standard is faithful to, faithfulness to him. Look at verse two. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found what? All right, so this is a really easy bow to put on verse one. When Paul says, this is how I want you to assess me. I want you to assess me and Apollos as three things, huperates, diaconus, and also doulosis. They're all the words servant in the, in the Bible. When you get us right in those three functions, then understand this also. <clears throat> The person to whom we have to give an account is to God. Notice what he says. It's accounted for us to be what? Faithful. Found faithful. Now watch this. Here's what Paul is saying. No matter what you say about us, guess who we have to answer to? Right. So like God is calling us to be faithful as servants. I have a great burden on me, says Paul. And that is, I'm a Hooperates, I am a, 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 a diaconist, I am also a doulos. Guess what? I got to go meet my master and answer for my labors. It's coming home, isn't it? Right. I mean, I could stretch that analogy out to children and parents. I could. I could. I could stretch this out if I was dealing with the larger eschatological implications of having children. All the fruit of the womb is the Lord's. When we have kids, we are simply being vehicles for God's glory. Those children are really God's children. We don't own anything. We were simply servants in a providential design called procreation, where we replicate the Imago Dei. The vast majority of that whole functional process is a gift from God. It's a gift to be a male. It's a gift to be a female. It's a gift to be healthy, capable men and women that can have children. It's a gift to have children. It's a gift to raise those children. It's a gift to raise those children in the fear and nurture of the Lord. Guess what? The Lord gave us that gift at the end of our life. We got to answer for it. Sure. All the fruit of the womb is the Lord's. This is why we're fighting against transgenderism in their attempt at wanting to destroy our kids. Again, heck no. All the fruit of the womb is the Lord's. This is where the church is silent. All the fruit of the womb is the Lord's. 
We're not going to give those children half a chance to make it if they get all jacked up in their head by by crazy hypersexual connotations at three years old. Am I making some sense? All right. So when Paul says more, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. What I shared with you last week is that God is going to search all of us out. That's the whole idea of being found out. It means the master is going to come and do some evaluating, assessing, analyzing, turning over everything to make sure he knows everything about what we did in our stewardship. Right. To be found faithful. We're called to be found faithful. So we will be examined. That's going to be our fourth point that I really want to pick up more on Friday. When I say we, I'm talking mostly about pastoral leadership, but this also applies to all believers. So notice what it says under point number two. We are his servants. That's the first thing to be sought out by him. He's going to seek us out. He's going to seek us out. And thirdly, what? And then we are your servants for Christ's sake. Got that? So Paul is saying we are your servants, but we're your servants for Christ's sake in the stead of Christ. That's the way that grammar is used. That's second Corinthians chapter four. Uh, verse five, by the way. So Paul understands that there is a relationship between him and the Corinthians by which they are to properly understand who he is and to recognize the great burden and responsibility they have to being a means of edification to the church at Corinth. Now he gets into the thing I want to talk about. Verse three. This is what I want to press into. Verse three and four is what I want to press into. First Corinthians four, three. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you. Do you know where we were last week? And what I began to do with you on that is to help you understand why I created this sort of uh, arcing up of these three categories here. Starting with we are, what Paul is getting ready to explain is that if we were to give a sort of evaluation of what's important in the area of we are, then you are, and he is, what he would say is first and foremost, we are the least in the consideration of the subject of judging. You are second, and then Christ is actually, I can probably say first, really, this should be the, be, be the way that it is. You are second and we are third, meaning that in terms of value or in terms of importance, Paul is about to say my judgment or our judgment of ourselves is of little value. And then he's going to tell them your judgment of us is of little value. The only real judgment is the judgment of him who sits on the throne. Did that make some sense? I know it may not be clear on the board in terms of the numerics, but this is what I want you to get. And I want you to understand the importance of when you and I are dealing with judgment, when we're dealing with assessment, when we're dealing with critique and, and analysis, you're going to always be dealing with the orbit of how you think about yourself, how other people think about you, and then how God thinks about you. You're going to always be doing that. Now, if you say no, you're wrong. You do. Now, as we work through what Paul is about to talk about, he's going to show you how you and I can remain free of misrepresent, misrepresenting the different stratuses or the different categories in a way in which we get them wrong. You can get judging wrong if you think the most important judgment about you is your judgment of you. 
you can get that wrong. You can also get it wrong if you think that the most important judgment is other people's judgment about you. You can get that wrong. And what Paul wants to help you to do is not get that wrong. As I stated, and I'm going to cap it here so I can go back and work through the language. At the end of the day, the only person's judgment that really ultimately matters is God's judgment about us. But would you agree with me, you guys? That's easier said than done. So I want you to be able to appreciate Paul over these next 20 minutes before I let you go, how he works it out. And what I share with you on Friday is that being able to be objective about self-analysis and critique and judgment and being objective about other people's judgment, analysis and critique of you is a real gift if you can be objective about it and not distort people's views about you or over invest in what you think people think about you. And certainly if you do the same thing with yourself, what is going to be the key to keep you from over investing emotionally in your own self opinion? And what is going to be the key to keep you from over investing in other opinions about you? It's going to be recognizing that you have a master and that as his servant in those three categories, you really only care about his assessment. This is designed to liberate you. Are you keeping up? All right, time to go to work a little bit. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Under point number two, uh, uh, under point number uh, three, look at point number three, a set day of judgment, not by what? It's a set day of judgment coming, but it's not going to be by men. This is why Paul can say in sub point A, your judgment is of what? Micro importance. Elacristo is the Greek term that means it's so small that I have no reason to be moved or disturbed by your analysis of me. It's not that it doesn't have some value. He didn't say your judgment of me is completely irrelevant. But what he said was, it's small. Now, how much grace is given to you and me when we hear people making assessments or judgment or critiquing us or even condemning us because they did that with Paul. They condemned him. They condemned him. The pejoratives and the ad hominems were serious. And what Paul was able to do was to deflect from a hyper emotional interest in wanting to win them and their favor and their approval so bad that he would betray his own master and betray the fact that he is his master's servant. Is that coming home? Is that coming home? Right. So inferred in what Paul is saying, which I talked about last week is child of God, please listen. When you are a servant of Christ, this is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 7. You are the freest person on the planet. 
That's paradoxical, right? I am a slave of Christ, but I am free. What that means is no other human being gets to exercise real, authentic judgment over me besides God. And, and, and I'm going to argue there's a reason why. It's not that they can't exercise judgment. It's not that they can't critique you. It's not that they can't lift you up in the public and shred you and turn you into a monster. We do that all the time. It's just that they're not really truly qualified to do it. So this is what I want to get into more fully on Friday, but I'm going to help start with you and me. The, the, and, and this needs to be understood about you too, because when you're evaluating people, you need to know whether or not you're exceeding the parameters of your limited understanding and actually usurping the Lord's position. What we talked about on Friday, didn't we? This is why Paul in Romans chapter 14, verse 7 says, who are you to judge another man's servant? Right. This is what he warns us about. This is where you and I have to know how to hold on to an idea of what I want to call limited judgment subject to fallibility. You and I have a limited scope of judgment subject to fallibility. Would that work? Of course it does. We get things wrong. Now, we, we can get a thing right. I'm not saying we don't get things right. I, I do want to kind of bring that into the hopper. You can get something right and it's not totally right. You can get something partially right and that partial right must be acknowledged as being right if it can be acknowledged. But you and I must know that we never plumb the depths and exhaust all of the possibilities around an assessment with anyone, including ourselves. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. This was a, a professing atheist who said this recently, and he's doing a stellar job at helping Christians uh, defend the faith in this present woke culture as he's explaining the history of, uh, of, 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 of Neil Marx's woke ideology that had in its framework the desire of a total transformation of our culture. I've already taught you guys that. We are in transformation because our society no longer is rooted in God. And so other people's judgments are actually prevailing. Other people's judgments are actually prevailing. The enemy's judgments are prevailing in the society of human beings who should have been protected by being servants of God. And I am, I am still working through to what degree can Christians find themselves being morphed into the image of this transitional state that we're in, at least in part because we are still simultaneously sinful and righteous, righteous and sinful and subject to be led down that path, at least temporarily. I don't put that in parentheses. We'll deal with it later. One of the things I do know is you and I can be impacted if we're not clear on this sort of structure of judgment. If I don't know that the Lord is my ultimate judge and that qualitatively his judgment is impeccable and superlative and so transcends other people's judgments, even my own judgments, that I must lean into him being my judge. I must lean into Christ being my judge. Does that make some sense? Right. And there are a lot of reasons for it. I talked about it before. See if we can get there a little bit before we come back on Friday. For now, we see through a glass what? What are we talking about? Perception. 
We're talking about judgment. We're talking about analysis. We're talking about insight. We're talking about wisdom. We're talking about conclusions we draw. Notice what the apostle said. And Job would affirm this and so would God in the Psalms. Here's what he would affirm. You and I barely see the truth. You and I barely see the truth. You're looking through a glass, what? Darkly, dimly. If we use the metaphor of that glass, that glass has a lot of distortions in it. We're seeing some things, but we're not seeing them in the impeccable perfection and and comprehensiveness of what they really are. There's darkness there. Is that true? Now do you understand the commodity of faith? as an essential component to keep us between a journey of, uh, that we have right now where things are vague and dark and the day when there will be no clouds in the sky and the day star will arise, that meridian sun, and everything will be as clear as heaven is. But between then and now, the path of the just is a shining light that is gradually increasing to clarity. Does that make sense? We don't have perfect clarity. Now, if we don't have perfect clarity, even though we may have sufficient clarity, even though we may have right clarity, isn't it absolutely critical that the adjective of our servant status be humility? Because what we'll be told in another place of the scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, no, Romans 8, we don't know as we ought to know. And Paul will say it in Romans 8, we we need to be praying because there's a lot of things we don't know. And, And in many cases, the church needs to be doing more praying than running off at the mouth. Because a lot of times we are saying things that are not true at length. Now, let's, it's just absolutely true. And And where Paul would tell you and me is to make sure that you don't let other people impose upon you assessments and judgments that are not valid and that are not true, first and foremost. So you can't be shaky in yourself about who you are and you can't be shaky in yourself about who God is. Am I making some sense to you guys? Stay here, stay here, just stay there. So now watch how Paul puts it. He says, going back to our text, thank you, sweetheart. I know in part... But then I shall know even as I am known. So when he says I know in part, that means I don't know completely. This is where faith comes in. Faith is the gap between the promise and the reality, is it? So in many cases, the the space between a promise proposition and a realization of that promise, I'm just walking by faith. I'm waiting till that thing shows up, bring clarity, edification, affirmation, signals of reality that I'm on the right path. Lord, lead me. Because I'm taking your word for what it says, but I don't see things like you see them. And grace me not to act like I do. Because if I do, I'm going to take your place on the judgment throne and I'm going to be assessing judgments on people that are not fair and that are not true. Church folk do it all the time. Because we fail to understand that faith is a gift that operates best for the humble. Oh no. So what I used to tell you guys all the time about how the angels would come to the prophets, take Daniel, Zechariah, 
Daniel, tell me what you see. You know what Daniel's saying? I don't know what I'm seeing. <laughs> Man, look at these some wild visions here. You got to help me. What do you mean ask me what I'm seeing, right? I'm going, how humble is that? How humble is that? So when we don't know, that means there's room for growth. When we don't know, that means there's room for more data, more information, greater clarity. Now, notice what Paul is going to say. Go back to our text, 1 Corinthians 4, 3. I'm going to steal these 10 minutes and let you go. Verse 3. But with me, it's a small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Will you get this one? Yea, I judge not my own self. That always trips me out how people just panic. <laughs> right, anyhow, anyhow, notice what Paul did. Paul said, I'm not moved by a major element in the church at Corinth wanting to condemn me because I have properly assessed the value of your judgment. It's micro. That's so good. That's so good. See, what Paul is asserting is his freedom from men entering into the domain of his conscience and being God over him. When we got all that going on in our world the very at this very time, don't we? Kids are often the victims of other human beings' judgments and then dragged up into captivity and made to do things and be things that does not correspond at all with who they really are. This is why Paul told us in Ephesians 4.11, be no longer children, 4.14, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and by the cunning slate of men that lay in wait to take you. You and I have to understand that as God's servants, we are free from the judgment of men. And my argument is that both them and us are inadequately, inadequate ultimately to make the kind of assessment and judgment that will correspond to how God would see it. People can get it wrong about you and you can get it wrong about other people. So let, let's walk this through a little bit more. Uh, go, yeah, there you go. But with me, it's a small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. I judge not my own self. Now, please get that line. I'm going to come back on Friday. This is not a recipe for sociopathic and pathological behavior. I, I said that on Friday. I wanted to come back home. When Paul says here, I judge not myself. He's not saying that he doesn't evaluate himself, that he doesn't critique himself, that he doesn't analyze what he does. He doesn't, he's not saying that he doesn't look to his ways. Please don't take that, lift that up and then throw the whole Bible out because your Bible tells you to make your calling and election sure. Your Bible tells you to examine yourself, whether you be in the faith or not. Your Bible says, ponder the path of your ways. Make your feet straight. Your Bible tells you to guard your heart, for out of it are all the issues of life. And so many Bible verses that tell you and I that the real world for us is the inner world of our conscience in relationship to him who sees everything. And on the more practical level with that, this is why you read in the Bible, he that saith he has no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. He that confesses his sins, God is faithful and just to forgive him of his sins and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness because there is a mediator between God and man and that is the man Christ Jesus. He happens to also be our Lord. So our master is the very means of cleansing us when we acknowledge that we have sinned. 
So don't say that we are not to render an assessment of ourselves because Psalm 51 would have to be taken out of the Bible. Psalm 32 would have to be taken out of the Bible. And as you learned last week, Psalm 139, the last verse, Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. So I'm going to already tie those two points together. Why would David say that? Lord, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. He would say that in anticipation of Paul letting you and I know you and I don't have the adequate capacity to exercise judgment by ourselves on ourselves. Did that make some sense? And how beautiful that Paul would say, I'm not compelled by any kind of anxiety to usurp my master's place about me and sit in judgment or approval of myself as if Christ doesn't have that prerogative. Right, now, this, this is going to help you. We're going to drill down on it on Friday because there are people who go about establishing their own righteousness. And what that would mean is that they sit on the throne of, of, uh, of impeccable and infallible judgment and they'll tell you they're righteous. Is that true? But Job will give you another answer. When you enter into that kind of process of going about to justify yourself, Job will tell you, you are running a fool's errand. So I'm just letting you know there are people and we will hear them. They have whole they have whole, whole religious systems that they use to justify themselves as being righteous because they do this and they do that and they do the other thing. Those people are fools and they're occupying the master's position. They are seeking to defend themselves. Now, nobody in this room ever does that. I know, I know nobody in this room ever does that. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of men's judgment. Yeah, I judge not my own self. In this statement here, what Paul is doing, he's dealing with a narrow subject matter that's at hand. And we'll get to it on Friday because, again, our time is, is narrow. But look at the next verse. I want to begin to massage the next verse with you on that and then just conclude with some thoughts. For I know nothing by myself. Do you see that? That was my whole argument for 30 minutes. For I know nothing by myself. I want to reconstruct that language there because I don't want you, again, to make the assertion that there aren't things that we can't know about ourselves. We can. We can know a lot about ourselves because this constitutes honesty and it constitutes awareness at the level of relationship with God. Right? So in a relationship with God, you and I are called to walk in the light. And as we're walking in the light, God is showing us who we are. Is that true? Every day you and I are doing micro and macro adjustments in our walk with God if we love him. Right? Well, if that's the case, we are daily becoming more and more aware of our, our character, our actions, our thought processes, our idiosyncrasies. Every day we're doing that. We're engaging in what I have taught you is course correction, self-course correction. We are recognizing when we are exaggerating. We are recognizing when we are prevaricating. Y'all know that word, prevaricate. If you know that word, when we're lying, the Holy Ghost will tap you on your show. Hey, you just lied. That's self-knowledge, Right? 
We, we are aware when we are fearful. We are aware when we're anxious. We are aware when our emotional makeup will be the prism through which we say something that's not as accurate as it should be. This is why David said in Psalm 51, Lord, you desire truth from the inward man. That is the whole context of self-awareness. Would you agree with that? I'm going to press that down Friday because that's the term. Paul says, I know nothing by myself. What that means is I can't independently certify anything that's going on without the help of God. Did that come home? I can't do this by myself. I can't do this by myself. And what Paul is doing here when he uses that term, I know nothing of myself, is he's actually playing a very smart a uh, very smart position with himself over against the system of accusation that's coming at him. Imagine Paul is in a court scenario and there are accusers coming after him. Can you see that? And rather than Paul defending himself, he's saying, speak to my lawyer. That'll come home in a minute. Right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, right? It's Christ that's sitting as our mediator, right? So, so notice what Paul is doing. He's appealing to what is said in the court systems, you know, um, holding his peace. Let his lawyer defend him. He's allowing his lawyer to defend him against the accusation of others, and he's allowing his lawyer to defend him against the accusations of himself. I'm almost done right here. I want to make sure you get this so we can unpack it on Friday. Because often we are our own worst enemy, depending on how we grew up and depending on how, how porous our minds and hearts were with people rendering accusations or assailing charges against us or traumatizing us when we grew up. You and I can be our own worst enemies in that sense. Whereas other people may want to give you a break, you won't give yourself one. Am I making some sense? Right. So when we are doing that, we are failing to avail ourselves to all that our master and mediator is for us, who has liberated us not only from other judgment, but from self-judgment. So I guess I have to grow if I'm spending more time occupying the throne of judgment against myself. I have to grow up out of that if I want to enjoy my relationship with God. Would you agree with that? So Paul is defending that position by saying, yet, now I want you to mark this. I love this. Thank, thank, thank you. This is it. This is where I'll stop. I'll pick it up on Friday because I want to get into, I want us to move into the rest of the text because the rest of the text will make sense when we get this. For I know nothing by myself. I certainly will need the spirit of the living God to bring me into a more accurate awareness and conclusion about any of my thoughts, actions, or deeds, right? Is that what the spirit of God is there for? Of course. He's the paraclete. He's going to show you sin, righteousness, and judgment, is he not? He's going to say, oh, that's wrong. Up, oh, Christ is your, your mercy seat. Up, oh, that's paid for, like I often tell you, all your sins are paid for. Boy, that's good. But now, we can forget that, can't we? And then we can inappropriately embrace what that means in terms of Christ being our master and Lord. Like, he paid for our sins, past, present, and future. And that's in order for us to have a relationship with him at the level of forgiveness of sins. 
so that we grow. Not that we become again pathologically committed to saying, let us sin that grace may abound. No, no. But when I do sin, grace is there available to abound over that sin to the degree that I give it to him. That's making sense, right? Very good. I love what Paul is saying. Now, here's the latter part that he says. Second part, he says, yet am I not hereby what? So I want you to get that as a uh, an exclamation and not a question. Sometimes in Greek grammar, that, 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 that colon there, that semicolon can be a question. Yet am I not hereby justified? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, even though I don't know nothing of myself by myself, that doesn't justify me. I love that. So what he's saying is, don't go around saying uh, ignorance is bliss. No. Here's what he's saying is, let the Lord, who knows how and when to show up in your life and tap you on your shoulder and say, it's time to get that thing right. Because that's how God works in your life. God works in your life by tapping on your shoulder after he's given you a little time to figure out how stupid you're being because he does give you time. And in so many of the areas in which we need to be better in our walk with God and, and, and better on our ways, it is remarkably true that God is patient with us. It's remarkably true that he lets us engage in prolonged periods of error. And I would generally say harmless error in the sense that the Holy Ghost will not allow you and permit you to be seriously injurious to others or even yourself without letting you know. Does that make some sense? I'm helping you. But it's certainly true in my own experience that, man, the Lord gives me a lot of room to work with all of the different choices and actions and events and wrong responses I make to things, at least in my own mind. I'm still trying to put together how I can be right in God's eyes and be wrong in my own eyes in terms of God having the ability to see me better than I see myself in a space in which I am not yet, but he knows I'm going to be there. Did that come home? Right, so this is important. So if, for God, he's not anxious about correcting me every second of the day, but because correction is going to happen at the appointed time in the appointed way, when God meets me at that place where he says, okay, it's, you have accrued enough evidence Jess, that we need to work on this now, okay? Because if not, I'm going to have to chase you. Does anybody know that? And by the time he does that, you go, Lord, you are so good. I'm ready to get that up. So the way Paul uses this language, I'm done here. He says, for I know nothing by myself. God has to help me to come to conclusions. And when he does, and he will in his own time, 
then I'll appropriately respond by saying, hallelujah, I wasn't guilty, or Lord have mercy, I was. And none of this, none of this means I'm justified because my justification is not based on my assessment of myself. That would be horrible. Now, once again, I'm usurping my master's position because he's the one that justifies me. Am I justified in Christ? Am I forgiven in Christ? Is there therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus? Right. That's what I have in my master. That's that is the affordable relationship promise that I have with him. That's why I can leave the judgment with him, because I know he didn't save me to damn me. He did not save me to damn me. He did save me to serve him. He did save me to say the truth. So you got to help me. The last line goes like this and we'll pick it up. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. I want you to capture that in the grammar. It's important. Now he, the one that is presently doing the judgment is the Lord. This is not an eschatological assessment of what will happen on the last day. We'll talk about that on Friday. That's in your outline. There's a day coming when God's going to make it all clear to everybody who was on whose side. You know, we all arguing right now, right? Who's saved and who ain't saved and who going to glory and who in glory. There's a day coming when God's going to straighten all that out. And some of us are going to be wrong somewhere. But God won't be wrong. So what he's saying here really is about sanctification. It's about the fact that God does work in our life now, assessing and judging and meeting out correction for his children. Like he will say to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, judge yourself now that you do not be judged with the world. Y'all got that? So God judges his people in this life in order to correct them and mature them and to grow them up. And what Paul wants us to be able to do is recognize that that is God's, that is Christ's prerogative in our life for us to let him be the one that does the judging. Does that make some sense? Because when he does it, he's going to be merciful. And when he does it, it's going to be sanctifying. And when he does it, it's not going to destroy us. Men may destroy us. We could destroy ourselves. But God won't destroy us. His judgment will always be to righteousness. This is why it's a wonderful thing to be a servant of the Lord. All right, you guys, that's it.